And we are live. Hello and welcome to the King Heroes Journey podcast. My name is Beth Martins. I have the great pleasure of having Simon Essler on today. And uh, Simon, I, I, it's really great to meet you. Thanks to uh, shout out to Annette Slater, who recommended I start looking in at your work. And, uh, and mostly I follow you on Instagram, called you an Instagram rock star because you're <laughs> putting out some really good content there all the time. And uh, so if you guys aren't familiar, um, you know what, let me uh, get Rockfin going so that I don't miss that. We're also going to be live on Rockfin. So while people are still coming on, and if you are coming on, say hello in the chat. I would love to see who's here. Hi, Omaya. Oh, fun. Rockfin is telling me I have zero content. Weird. Oh my gosh. Well, we might not be on Rockfin today. That's bizarro, but uh, I can just upload it later. Give me a minute. Maybe it's decided that I'm not logged in. Sure. Could be. And uh, hello, Michelle. Nice to see you. I'm glad you're on. Fantastic. Welcome to the stream. We're going to be here about an hour and 15 minutes talking about the family's hero's journey. And this is a big subject for me because I, uh, in 2019, wrote and published my own book on the hero's journey. Oh, look, Rockfin is going to work. That's awesome. Good. And uh, so I'm very tuned into the hero's journey. I think we have a lot in common. I have appreciated everything that you've published because you're coming from a very even place. You're not uh, full of hate, which is a lovely thing. And uh, that helps the algorithms see that we're not here making trouble. We're, we're here uh, with solutions, right? That's Yes, that's a big yeah. deal. It might be one of the reasons I haven't been completely booted from Instagram. I did have a time where Instagram was very aggressively censoring me. And then eventually that did lift. And so I've been very strategic, I've tried to be very strategic with my content since then, which has worked pretty well. It's helped me grow the page. Um, so that's you know, one of the reasons I've gone full force into Instagram, because it's one of the places where I've managed to survive. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah, it's fun because the algorithms really tune into tone of voice and how much you cuss and the, you know, the levels of vitriol and anger and all that kind of stuff that uh, it's, it's just so great not having to, uh, you know, cater to that lower yeah, level. Well, and I find like that that kind of emotionally charged content, like it's understandable in that there's lots going on in the world that evokes that level of passion and intensity from people. But at the same time, if your intention is to try to bridge the gap, is try to um, reduce some of the division and the divisive narratives that are ongoing, then you want to appeal to people on both sides. And if you are angrily sort of yelling about the one side, you might really gather a following of people that agree with you on that regard, but um, you're likely to push away people that um, maybe you could have had a reasonable conversation with. Right on. Beautiful. I love that. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, and, and I would rather be in the company of, of people that have their wits about them rather than losing their wits and, uh, and be of service to those people. This is something I'm passionate about helping people with too. I think the way that social media itself impacts the human nervous system, um, I don't think it's something people really understand. And um, actually, I recently did a presentation at uh, Break Live um, in Sandpoint, Idaho. Um, and uh, part of that was to speak to people about 
you know, some practical solutions for navigating social media in the middle of a, a war that is, you know, very much rooted in psychological warfare uh, and what it means to regulate the nervous system if we're going to be online all day looking at outrageous things. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, our most recent outrageous thing, uh, I always get it dripped because I keep my head down. I do my work that I'm called to do, my hero's journey. And then because I've got a number of uh, channels, by the way, you know, you can find me on Instagram. You can find me. I'm not as active. I just I really just post there. But uh, Telegram is the place that I'm more actively in conversation. And the um, so, you know, things will drip to me. I, and I always have the prayer out to God that if I need to see something, I will be shown. But I didn't have to, like, I could get it vicariously. Everybody's freaking out and crying and, and traumatized. And so I can see, like, yeah, I don't, I don't need to go and traumatize myself with that information. It was, it was really interesting. So, you know, for uh, the... I was, I was hearing uh, Jeff Berwick on the Dollar Vigilante. I don't know if you're familiar. And he, he did a synopsis of since World War II, how every single war, and I think it's been two and a half years every time they decided to uh, attack somebody in a new country, that they always use the, you know, dare I say, baby's heads as the leading message every mm. time. Yes. Right, so here we are again. It's a pattern, right? There's nothing that's going to get your blood boiling more, or your, you know, whatever place you default into, whether it's the anger or the grief or all of that kind of stuff. So, it's, and there was uh, the one about the the babies pulled out of incubators as well, right? Yeah, that was, I believe, that was World War uh, One that uh, that yeah. they did. That. Yeah, I think I just heard that yesterday. So. Yeah, yeah, we're on to them. And uh, what they're doing isn't working very well. You know, there was a lot of threats here in Canada. Where are you located, Simon, by the way? I'm in Toronto. You're in Toronto, you're in Canada as well. Okay, yeah. perfect. Okay, great. Yeah. So, you know, there was a lot of fear porn early in the in the fall and telling us the new scariant was coming out and yes. uh, we're all they were headed for restrictions and travel bans and all that kind of thing. And everybody's like, yawn, I need to go to sleep now. And, you know, so nobody's following anything and we're not hearing anything. And they had to resort to this other uh, atrocity to get people's attention. And, you know, it, it, it works, unfortunately, but. Uh, it does. Well, you know, it's important for people to understand that there are stages to, um, you know, to certain kinds of, of warfare. Like if you look at um, the stages of ideological subversion in communism. So these were described by Yuri Bezmenov in 1984. And uh, the final stage of ideological subversion, according to this sort of communist doctrine, is crisis, or sorry, is normalization. But before that comes crisis. So the idea is to put people into such a state of crisis that you can then implement these kinds of um, these very intense norms that are very controlling for the population. And so it's interesting to me that we have been kept in one crisis after another nonstop. And, you know, it doesn't matter really where you fall in terms of what you believe is going on in the world. There is an inevitable impact on the human collective when we are kept in a perpetual state of crisis. Uh, you know, that that has consequences as far as people's ability to think freely. There's really no way around that fact. Yes, exactly. I'm acutely aware of it, having gone through something recently where my, I found my adrenals were, uh, you know, riding on empty for a long time because of all of this. And and I'm a person who I will create my own trouble. 
I don't go looking for trouble. I'm, you know, not going to focus on the trouble anymore, but I will create it for myself. So, you know, there you go. Do not pass code, do not collect $200 and, uh, and take care of the nervous system and the gut that didn't like all that. So um, would you take a few minutes for anybody who's not really uh, familiar with you and, and just let us know more, more about you, your background? How did you get to this place where you're speaking out and telling the truth? Yeah, sure. So um, I have a really a varied background. I've had a lot of different career paths. Um, I've gathered a lot of very different skill sets. Um, and so there's there's a range of experiences that have brought me to where I am today. Um, I began, um, I guess, more formally as a, as a theater practitioner. So I majored in theater um, at York University. Um, and specifically, I majored um, in, in a stream within uh, York that was based on collective creation. And it was all about collectively creating theater. And we played with different sort of hierarchies and roles. So, you know, we would play with it where um, people within a group in our in our class, we would get together and everyone would be a writer, everyone would be a director, everyone would be an actor. And that real sense of collective creation was played with. Um, but we also really focused on restrictions and what restrictions do for you creatively as an artist. One of the main principles that we were taught was that your restrictions will free you. Um, and this actually, it was very revealing when I had to audition for this program. It was called Creative Ensemble. And in the audition, we had to practice, a, uh, or sorry, we had to include a death, a kiss, a dance. Um, all text in the performance had to be pulled from a magazine, a novel, and one other piece of literature. And then we had to have a prop that we used in three different ways as three different items specifically. And so basically they said, you have a few minutes uh, that you can do this and come and present this to us with all these restrictions and let's see what you come up with. And uh, this principle was driven into us throughout the program. And so this became very informative to me in terms of um, how to channel one's creativity, you know, to have a proper container, to be restricted enough that your creativity is given a path that is clear. So that that really stuck with me when I was in university. Um, so, you know, I, I came out of university um, doing some acting work for different theater companies in Toronto. I'm still doing that. I actually regularly perform doing um, comedy theater here in Toronto. I work with Mysteriously Yours Dinner Theater. And so um, I'm regularly doing comedy theater still. Mm. Um, at the same time, I, um, I also uh, began a career path as a personal support worker. So um, that was born from me starting a business called Thunderheart Guidance. And I worked as a practitioner doing mindfulness and meditation-based guidance for people. Um, and this was sometimes for groups, sometimes for individuals. So, you know, sometimes it was just with like friends in my network. Sometimes I was working with high-level CEOs who were really stressed and needed help with really deep meditative techniques. Um, and other times I was working with places like funeral homes and helping them to integrate mindfulness and meditation into the bereavement process and help reduce stress for people who had lost loved ones. Hmm. Um, so I built up this practice, Thunderheart Guidance. And through that work, I actually ended up getting invited to work with a family um, who was struggling with their autistic child. Um, they were struggling in terms of his education. He really was not being properly supported in the public system. And they had decided to try some homeschooling. And so they asked me if I would come and bring my mindfulness-based work into their home and help develop some homeschooling curricula for their child. Hmm. 
Um, this ended up being so impactful. It had such an impact on the child and was so positive for the family that actually their family services worker noticed and approached me and said, I'm wondering if you'll come work with some other clients that I have and started connecting me with other children and adults on the autistic spectrum um, to bring my services to them. And so I ended up working, uh, doing this kind of personal support work for years with kids and adults on the autistic spectrum. Um, from there, I really got interested in um, the ritual side of mindfulness and meditation. And that had been a big anchor for me as a teacher is teaching people that um, the way you enter a meditation and the way you exit a meditation is as important as the meditation itself. Hmm. That um, when you ritualize the beginning of a meditation over and over again, you're actually speaking to your body. Our bodies are very receptive to ritual. And so if your body notices you do these few things before you meditate each time, um, then your body starts to tune in. It knows that it's meditation time when you've repeated that ritual enough. And similarly, coming out of a meditation, when we create gradual steps in coming out of that, um, we carry more of the meditation with us as opposed to just opening your eyes, getting up and like getting started with your day and like rushing out of it. Um, I, you know, I really learned that ritualizing the exit of a meditation carries more of that with you. And so my interest in ritual uh, carried over into my training with um, what's called uh, life cycle celebrancies. So I worked with the life cycle celebrant, um, the celebrant Institute and foundation, and I became a certified life cycle celebrant. And this was the study of custom uh, ceremony, the, the art of custom ceremony creation. And so we studied the history and sort of the elemental nature of ceremony and ritual. And so I became certified as a life cycle celebrant. Uh, and that was at the time very focused on creating custom wedding ceremonies for people and helping couples who were, you know, coming from different backgrounds, create a ceremony that would bring their, their family's unique cultures and unique religions into one ceremony to show the merger of those two families. And so from my um, certification as a life cycle celebrant, I went and worked with uh, the Bancroft um, Center for Awakening Spiritual Growth, which is a church just here in Toronto that um, I became legally ordained as a minister through. I became um, uh, what's called a metaphysical minister. And that was very focused on being able to work with people from different religious backgrounds, but still offering metaphysical and spiritual guidance. And so because I became legally ordained through the Bancroft, Bancroft Center for Awakening Spiritual Growth, I then had the legal capacity to perform wedding ceremonies and to start to do custom wedding ceremonies. Um, and um, so I did that for, for many years. And um, that was a really, really beautiful experience. It was very impactful because I noticed how powerful it was for human beings to have custom ceremonies that are built out of their personal stories and what it meant to take the story of a couple and very much using the hero's journey archetypes looking at what the story of this couple is and then having a ceremony be born out of that couple's journey together. I just, I watched it completely change their lives and change their, you know, friends and family would just light up. Just, they weren't able to believe how impactful it was to be at a wedding ceremony that was made up of the story of their friends falling in love instead of like a sort of dry, more traditional wedding ceremony that was just um, more disconnected from them. Um, and so, you know, that, that was a big winding path for me. And, um, 
After doing all of that, the personal support work and acting and the custom wedding ceremony, I, I really came up against uh, the lockdowns and, and the whole response to, to all of that, uh, that basically shut down all of those career opportunities for me. And I was kind of pigeonholed into content creation. And at the time I had been working, I'd been doing some conferences on sort of paranormal experiences and, and, and a lot of very sort of out there topics. I'd been invited to some conferences because I had had some paranormal experiences myself. And it was at one of these conferences that I had um, a streaming platform in the United States approach me and say, look, we really love your work. Will you come and make some syndicated shows for us? And I got pushed in the direction of professional content creation. And so um, I ended up pushing into that more full time. That's more of what I'm focused on now. Um, and so I've developed lots of shows and films um, for these different platforms. And I have now released independently my first film um, on my own, which is Cut Daughters of the West. And now I'm really coming back around to pulling everything together. And I'm working on this offering called Legacy Keepers. And it's about giving parents the tools to look at their child through the lens of the hero's journey so that they can build rites of passage out of their child's unique story. Um, because I really feel like that's something that's that's missing today in, in families and in our cultural landscape, generally speaking. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, what's the name of the film again? Cut Daughters of the... Cut Daughters of the West. Of the West. Yeah, right. and people can check that out at daughtersofthewestfilm.com. And that really explores the impact of demoralization um, within our society. Um, so the way that our society has moved in the direction of demoralization and what that's done to preteen and teenage girls and all the different ways that's manifested as social contagions that have become harmful. So it really starts off in cosmetic surgery actually and looks at the growth of the cosmetic surgery industry and then some of the trends that are now occurring. So, you know, for example, one of the trends that is exponentially growing is teenage girls getting labiaplasties, which is cosmetic genital surgery. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that that is, that's growing in girls. And so of course there are lots of social contagions people are talking about today with teenage girls, but I take a very broad look at how this has built up over history um, and what it's manifested uh, into today. Right. Yeah. I just have to shake my head and sometimes look away from all of that stuff. It's, it's really yeah. a phenomena. Yeah. I can't even imagine, but it, it's a thing. And I know people who know it's a thing. And I think someone here also was telling me about it. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, it, uh, I, I love that. I was extremely focused on rites of passage uh, at one time as well uh, on the heels of surviving cancer. I, I, you're, you and I are just meeting, so you may not uh, know my background and, uh, and would offer people workshops in creating those kind of scenarios. And uh, it's, inter it's interesting with ritual as a kind of a twofold thing that ritual can work for you and it can work against you say you know where the where the ritual is not life supportive and it doesn't actually hold truth and it's not your truth and it's imposed you know certain rituals they will in my opinion or my observation that they they can numb you out yeah and make and make you blind so as long as the rituals there it's set up you know like a chemical um, situation in your body and nervous system situation in your body. And then the content you're all ready for whatever content they want to jam in there to yeah. pro program you, but, you know, doing it obviously from a place of having so much mindfulness and making it about the person that just sounds 
delicious to me. It's <laughs> really very powerful. I mean, this is why yeah. I'm so excited about Legacy Keepers because, you know, it's not like we haven't had rites of passage for children. Of course, you look at like the bar mitzvah and confirmation and there's been lots of ways that religion has approached that. But I think the difference between that and what I'm focusing on doing is that, you know, religion has often looked at the child as an empty vessel into which relig religious dogma and tradition should be inserted and that the child should then carry that to the next generation. Whereas when you get to know the child very deeply, when you use the hero's journey to see who that child is, what their unique struggle is, and what the meaning of that child's lifelong struggle is, um, then they can still um, pass on like religious and spiritual knowledge. But in fact, they become more efficient at, at doing that because who they are has been honored so incredibly that where in them they are capable of carrying new knowledge and no, new wisdom is honored rather than seeking to suppress the individual individuality of that child so that they can then receive these dogmas and these traditions. And so that's the kind of balance that I'm hoping to strike here because um, this is something that has fallen away. Like I know, I know, I see around me that children are not being given the rites of passage that they need to move through the difficult phases of life, uh, you know, especially adolescence. I say primarily adolescence. Right, exactly. And so what are the effects of, of that that you notice if we talk about that first? What, what is the, that lack of, especially, I'm, I completely agree. Yeah. How, do, how does that play out in their lives? Well, so when we give a struggle meaning, there's a kind of embodiment that can happen. And this is what I'm seeing generally, that there's this massive pattern of disembodiment um, in, in, in adolescence because What's occurring in adolescence very much has to do with the body, with the development of the body, especially for adolescent girls. The transformation of the female body during adolescence, its, it's, um, it's implications are very large, both for the individual girl, but also culturally speaking. You know, the movement towards fertility and the capacity to, to bear children, the, the implications are, are very, very intense. And the physical transformation is, is very, um, it can be very rocky, especially if it's not given meaning and purpose. And this is one of the issues that I think we're struggling with today. Um, you know, the, the power of motherhood has been undermined um, as an ideal. And so it's no longer held up as this beautiful, powerful ideal because um, it's been placed against um, a sort of uh, feminist notion that uh, certain parts of motherhood are actually oppression um, and if you look at it just from like a Marxist point of view, for example, the idea is that, you know, the mother is just this means of reproducing children who then are plugged into the capitalist system. This is why Karl Marx stated that the, the abolishment of the family was necessary, because from his point of view, the family unit just reproduced the capitalist hegemony. So, you know, you have ideas like that floating around, you know, you have it being challenged by critical race theory, which states that the, the nuclear family um, reproduces white supremacy. You have some of those ideas being promoted in, you know, gender studies and queer theory that state that there's certain forms of oppression that come with the heteronormative family. So the ideal of the mother is placed against some of these new ideologies that have been inserted into our cultural landscape. And so it has downplayed it. And so, uh, you know, girls who are moving into their ability to have children are not surrounded by ideals showing them the beauty and the power of motherhood. But in fact, they're often surrounded by ideals that subvert it and say that, you know, also, you know, maybe motherhood is oppressive and maybe you should just 
be a career woman who's focused um, only on personal pleasure. And, you know, um, it's not that no one should do that. But when we're looking at the power of cultural ideals, what we're dealing with is a kind of compass for our civilization, for our society. And I think this is one of the tricky things that has occurred is that certain ideologies have fed us the notion that ideals are inherently oppressive and exclusionary. And so uh, these ideals, like the ideal of the family, like the ideal of mother motherhood, have been attacked as oppressive when um, I don't know that that's necessarily true. I think that might be misleading. I think ideals are better seen as a collective compass that point us in a certain direction. And um, an ideal, there should always be variations on an ideal. We should always have people in our culture who are experimenting outside of the ideals. That I think is healthy. But when ideals are attacked and when we're left without them, our direction as a civilization, um, it begins to get very, very murky and very chaotic. And I think the teenage girl is a good example of this. Um, you know, when you look at the way womanhood is presented to adolescent girls, you have things like, um, you know, you have Miley Cyrus and Beyonce who are doing these very explicit sexual performances, um, which in and of itself isn't necessarily bad. But then the media coverage on their careers states these women are peak feminism. These are the only feminist leaders that we need. You know, um, th these are actual statements in the media. And so girls are handed this idea that, oh, well, your body's changing. You're moving towards womanhood. And if you want to participate in peak womanhood, it's hypersexualization. Um, and in that, that, that's very frightening, I think, for a lot of girls. And it's why you have a struggle now with a lot of girls choosing to modify their bodies in a whole variety of different ways as a response to these strange pressures. And in many ways, I think they're trying to escape womanhood and that very difficult transition. So to me, um, mm -hmm. when you give meaning to the struggle of moving through adolescence, you're stabilizing it. It's like a container that allows them to travel through those turbulent years and come out the other side of those turbulent years with something meaningful they can then take and grow with. Amen. I love that. Um, you know, it's it, it's the war between meaning and uh, meaninglessness that <clears throat> I don't know if that's exactly accurately stated, but that is the enemy yeah, yeah. because as soon as it's meaningless, there's no reason to go through the struggle. Yes, You're precisely. Right. You're completely lost to it. And, and I also uh, have equated meaning with purpose. Right. So if you if you lack the meaning in the situation, you lack the purpose. And if you lack the purpose, you lack the hero's journey or you're rejecting the hero's journey that God calls you on. A hundred percent. And, you know, you know, it's interesting. I, I um, I've studied uh, like Buddhism and Taoism quite a bit. And there's some teachings I've come across that look at the womb, you know, the, the, the woman's womb as the center for creativity in the woman. And that when women are producing something artistically, they're actually producing from their womb energetically. And I, I always thought this was a really beautiful insight because it, it frames the womb as something that gives birth, even for women that choose not to go down the path of, of motherhood. And that's where, you know, you can look at these ideals. They're so beautiful that even if a woman chooses not to be a mother and not to start a family, she could still benefit from this ideal of the power of the female body and its capacity to give birth creatively speaking, there's still a lot there to work with. And, and I think, again, that would really, really benefit 
um, young women, and, and it doesn't mean they have to be coerced down the path of motherhood. Um, it's really about framing the power of the actual female body. And a lot of what's going on and has been going on for a long time to me has been about attacking and oppressing the power of the actual female body of anatomy and biology and what is unique about women's biology. You know, we see that right now. There is a big struggle with, uh, you know, women's spaces and and the way that, um, you know, gender fluidity and non-binary, you know, queer theory has impacted women's spaces. But it even goes before that, right? When you look at uh, what the industrial revolution and the development of sort of industrial medicine did to the process of giving birth and the way that women were put into hospitals and they were laid down instead of squatting and suddenly birth was something that had to be managed by male medical practitioners. Even that as well was like an oppression of like the inherent power in the female body that women have millions of years of evolution running through them that knows how to get that baby out um, to, to the extent that, you know, I, I think a lot of the problems today with, with birth and birth trauma have to do with excessive interference. And what we're looking at is a need for non-interference. Um, so you have this sort of long standing pattern um, that has oppressed both the ideals of womanhood and motherhood, but also the actual physical reality of women's bodies. Yeah, beautiful. I uh, <clears throat> I only had one son. I wasn't supposed to be able to even get pregnant at all. So I treated it like a gift. And I had made many friends in the birth world for some reason. I don't know why I had attracted all of these doulas and uh, midwives who knew about midwifery and how the whole birth process had been co-opted by the medical system. And, and pregnancy became a medical condition and birth became a medical emergency. And <clears throat> so I learned through all of them. They had one baby in the hospital, never again. They had the second baby with a medwife at home, never again. The third baby, they, they did a free birth. So I went right there. And yep. uh, wow. I, had, I had midwives, but they actually ended up firing me for a home birth because I wasn't allowing all of the testing and the checking and all of that stuff that I knew would send their fire alarms off. But, yep. you know, just trusted that if and I packed a hospital bag, you know, yep. <clears throat> I, I, if I had to go, if I got the message, I'm going to go. Uh, but everything just, you know, all I basically needed my two doulas for in the end who were there was to tell me it's okay. I'm going like, is this okay? They're going, yep, it's okay. And it was wow. a very straight birth. Yeah. So my son has never had medical intervention of any kind, which is kind of rare these yeah, days. Yeah. You know what? I, that's amazing. It's amazing to meet another human being on this side of things. Cause that was our experience as well. Actually, we just had a friend who was a doula um, and we, we had midwives, but it was, uh, you know, my partner, Amanda's strong sense that they were not to be there. And so we just did the free birth here at home uh, with our mm -hmm. first son, Asher. And, mm -hmm. and it's the same thing, you know, it's like um, their, their relationship with the medical system is almost nothing. Um, and, and it's, it's rare. It is very rare to, to find, but, but it shouldn't be. I think this is the thing is, is again, like women's bodies are full of, full of this knowledge and wisdom. And this is the kind of, I think, legacy, legacy knowledge that should be given to girls as they move through adolescence. Like, you know, this is kind of, you know, powerful legacy material that I think families should be um, offering to young girls as they move into womanhood.
Yeah, they uh, they robbed people, you know, with a combination of cesareans and the the intervention, the saving the woman from the pain and the experience. Yeah. They have saved them from the the rite of passage. Yes, it is extremely transformative. You know, this is a little on the flaky side, but it, people say like it's in there that you actually download how to raise that child. You get the code through that experience of going through really what is your own death? You're dying in that moment. I totally, moments. totally agree with you. This is something I've talked about many times uh, from a number of different angles. So I think the fact that um, women have uh, they have that hero's journey built into them. The actual, they have to go into the unknown and face death uh, through giving birth. This is, I, I think this is one of the most powerful advantages women have. And frankly, I kind of noticed it by observing the response of a lot of fathers to, uh, you know, the, the, the scary, the scary sort of viral narrative that was inserted into our world. Uh, I noticed that a lot of the fathers were the most scared. And mm -hmm. to me, I think part of this comes uh, from the fact that unless a man, either through the circumstances of his life or through the intentional, um, you know, the intentional creation of a challenge of overcoming something that is akin to that, that level of rite of passage, like facing death, facing your fear of death and overcoming it. I think unless men have that experience in their lives, then when they're faced with things that say, you might die, you might die, I think a lot of men today are very easily programmable and very easily influenced. And I just say that because I noticed during that time, you know, when we were in the middle of lockdowns and all this, I noticed a lot of moms standing up very quickly and coming together and a lot of moms who were very, very firm in their position right away. Um, Whereas I, I didn't see that with a lot of dads. And I, I do wonder, I really wonder, is this because some of the, the fear porn that was being pumped into our communities that said you're going to die, was some of that less effective for mothers who had gone through that rite of passage and had already faced their fear of death? You know, I could never prove something like that, but it's something I've really wondered about uh, in, in looking at the way different groups responded to that very challenging time. Yeah, good, good possible guess. There was uh, there was a lot more mama bears, and it was one of the things that inspired me. I I created the, this podcast just pre-pandemic, and uh, it, you know to call out, not call out in a, a negative way, but to like call on the king heroes, like where are you guys, and yes. and not and uh, and also to honor them for the uh, the effort. You know, because I was a victim. I'll say I was a victim of the feminist movement. And, uh, you know, just like all of the, the hippie movement and the witchery movement, I was starting to comment a little bit on, on uh, Facebook recently, now that we're getting into the witchery season, how they're all uh, social, engineering, social engineering and uh, completely fake. But I've, I, you know, I was the person who invented that movement. I felt that to be, I had literally taken it on and, and owned it. And then the whole life had a, a hard relationship with men. Right. So it wasn't until my father died and it brought that that breath, that, that death was my rite of passage to go through and see like, yeah, he's gone and I'm still at war. Who am I really warring with here? Mm. Uh, I'd worked a lot on it, but it, it but it, it was it took that extremity for me to go to the depths of it, came out of it with a completely new perspective. All of a sudden, all the wrongs weren't due to, you know, the male species side side of our of our humanity. And I could take each 
men on their own merit rather than just putting a blanket, uh, you know, my program on top of them as an overlay to every single thing. You know, I went really deep into this. I have a, a six-part docu-series called Superorganism. Mm. Um, and this docu-series, uh, it was a study of um, the war on the family, very much the occulted war on the family. So a lot of the more secretive social engineering that seems to have gone on in that, in that regard. Um, and it was that occulted war on the family in comparison to the ideal of the, the nuclear family as a superorganism for transmitting wisdom through the generations. Um, and, you know, I wanted to really respond to what I saw as the war on the family. And one of the reasons I was so intrigued by this ideal of the family unit as a superorganism for gathering wisdom and passing it on through the bloodline um, was because some of the materials that I found seem to reveal that one of the reasons there is a war on the family is because family legacy is very dangerous for those who want to maintain centralized forms of power, who want to, you know, let's say set up global systems of power and, you know, create a different order of power in our world. Um, that really can't be done if you have strong families that are developing wisdom on how to live and that they're keeping the integrity of that wisdom and they're passing it on through the family line. I mean, one of the reasons that's a threat to people who seek to centralize power on this larger scale is that that kind of wisdom and knowledge, it is not subjected to political cycles. It's not subjected to shifting media narratives. It's not subjected to, you know, the changing of the education system. That kind of wisdom, when the family unit is used for that generation after generation in a stable way, it outlasts all those potential forms of manipulation. And so from my understanding, that's one of the reasons the family unit is a threat to some of the people that are in a position to socially engineer us. Um, and so this docuseries Superorganism really looked deeply into this, into how there are specific ways that children are targeted and specific ways that women and mothers are targeted and fathers and men are targeted. And I very much looked into this idea that feminism was, was infiltrated and used as a social engineering opportunity and in fact, you know, there's these documents called the Toronto Protocols. And when they were released um, in 1995 by a journalist named Sergei Manast, they were, of course, you know, maligned as conspiracy theory. They talk about, you know, these this group getting together and talking about creating, a, you know, a, a world order and uh, and and designing uh, a new society where power is centralized in a global way. And they talk about the fall of nation states in order to centralize power globally, but they very specifically map out how they're going to do this. And it's why I find these documents so interesting because the explicit warfare plan that they map out in these documents, we seem to be living through it very, very specifically. So if someone goes and reads the Toronto protocols, it's interesting to see that what they apparently said in these two meetings they had, this is what the documents are. There's a meeting in 1967 and another meeting in 1985. They're mapping out how they're going to reorder the whole world. And they do explicitly say, we are going to take the natural parts of women's liberation and we are going to infiltrate that movement and push it to its logical extreme to ensure that the mother is removed from the family because we understand that the mother is the central node of the family unit. And if she can be removed by pushing feminism to this extreme, then it will destabilize the family and stop these forms of legacy knowledge 
so that children become more reliant upon government, media, and public schools. So it's a very, very interesting read, and it shows you a lot of what's going on today. Right. Yeah, it's no accident, right? Like that uh, didn't just turn out this way. It's not a... It's not a failure of, of humanity, unfortunately, you know, and, and there's all kinds of things we fell for. I don't know if you're familiar with a, an author. Uh, he was actually a mentor of mine. He was from here in Manitoba. Um, uh, uh, Stefan Arneo is his name. And he published a series of books that were under the title of uh, Hard Times Create Strong Men from that. I can't remember who originally uh, said that. And then the fourth volume, just before he passed, he, he uh, laid his fourth book on me. And it's all about women more so because he'd been writing about men. And he was he was one of those king heroes that was going to rise, you know, raise the young men and, and make them strong leaders and, you know, have have the family values. You talked about idealism to me that comes down to values. So a lot of really good stuff in there. And then and then the fourth book is so painful because it's showing how, um, you know, it's, it's framing women as four things. Let's see if I could even get all of them. It's, it's the, the maiden, the princess, the, um, I think it's actually the whore, the maiden, the princess, and the oracle. And how many women end up in, in the process of, of this, this fallout in society end up the whore right? And, and yeah. eliminating themselves from any kind of a family situation. And, you know, just looking at myself and here I am much more in a King hero role than I am, you know, and I'm, I, I have a broken family, although we have a, 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 a like, a, you know, incredibly good situation. I work on that a lot. So it's not, uh, you know, in, in conflict or anything like that, but you can, we can see the, the damage of it and uh, how it's influenced my son. And all of that kind of thing, and then and then you just look back at the rubble and go like, "Wow, can you fix this? Is there any is there any remedy?" And it, it, I I like what you said about the biology of women, how that that doesn't go away. And I think Stefan would have agreed. And and in this book, he's saying that that it's you know it, it has that it doesn't um, it doesn't go away. You can't erase that, and you might end up in the oracle place in life more so. So I don't know if you have any comment on that. I'm not sure what my point exactly was. No, I have lots I can say. You know, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Joseph Chilton Pierce. No. Um, he's done some really incredible research on, on the, the power of, of, of child rearing in terms of, you know, women actually staying with the child for the primary years. And he looked into this, into all the different ways that our collective has been traumatized by separating the mother from the child. And, um, you know, I, I think this is like an untapped field of research. Personally, I, I really don't think we comprehend the actual power and majesty of what is going on between a mother and a child in those formative years. I think we have just, just peeked into some of it, but some of what he talks about, um, you know, it has to do with the way that the child relates to the earth itself so literally to the planet earth he explains how there are actual brain structures that we have that um develop our relationship with the earth as this larger matrix and this larger natural environment and the, the child literally has brain formations that occur in terms of their relationship with the earth but this happens through the mother's body 
And this is one of the things that happens to the child who is disassociated from the mother during those formative years. Their relationship with the earth as a matrix, as a larger matrix, is actually cut off from a neurological level. And of course, on the flip side, this means that a child is, they're, they're more grounded and connected to the earth itself if they are with the mother during those formative years, if they're allowed to bond with the mother. So this early bonding with the mother's body, the, 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 the impacts of it, they stretch very, very, very far into our society. One of the other things he points to is that um, both in the womb and during breastfeeding, um, the child being in the field of the mother's heart, in terms of the mother's states of being, um, this is informing the child's nervous system. It's informing the child's self-regulation. Um, but another way of looking at this is this is another path for legacy forms of knowledge to move through the generations. And this is one of the things that I present in my docuseries, Superorganism, that there are non-linguistic or sublinguistic forms of knowledge and wisdom that are passed on through the biology of the family unit, that we are designed for devotion and the cultivation of wisdom very, very specifically. And so when the child is in the womb and, and is being breastfed, when the mother is in states of gratitude and states of love, that is informing the child's heart and is passing on these non-linguistic forms of knowledge through states of being. And so, of course, when you start to separate the mother and the child, you know, just at, at sort of in a basic way, in terms of the mom going back to work after six weeks, which is really, really common now, right? So you have that, but then also you have uh, breastfeeding. You know, one of the things that Joseph Chilton Pierce talks about is that uh, breastfeeding disappeared in the United States in about 97% of the population for a 50 year period because of all the propaganda about formula and on all the, the, the feminist propaganda that said it was empowering for women to get out of the house and into the workforce. Um, and so when we look at just those two things, the fact that the mother's body is inviting the child into a relationship with the earth itself on a neurological level, and you look at the fact that the mother's heart is passing on legacy forms of knowledge to the child through states of being and states of consciousness, what does it mean to have had that cut off for our collective? And how, how much of what we're seeing in the world today in terms of behavior, war, chaos, how much of that is the collective playing out the trauma of being disassociated from these deep connections that we are meant to experience from our mothers from birth, you know, moving into childhood? Exactly. And uh, so as I was writing my book, I'm going to show it off here. I hope you don't mind this it's, uh, yeah. a map of archetypes to find lost purpose in a sea of meaninglessness, the archetypes of the hero's journey as I found them. And um, so this, uh, you know, my, one of my first references just to, to be responsible was to go back and uh, re, I think I listened instead of was rereading the hero with a thousand faces, Joseph Campbell, which is, you know, one of the most notorious books on the hero's journey. Well, I get, you know, like a little bit of the way into it and I'm completely traumatized because from my academic mind that I originally read it from in my anthropology degree, I was desensitized. And I was dissociated, so I couldn't feel the pain. Well, now I can feel the pain of especially the separation of the male child from the mother and how this is, you know, considered a, well, it is a rite of passage, a very unfortunate passage into what you said, dissociation. 
right? That, yes, that yes. you know, and my, my family, I just have to rant about this quickly, but uh, you know, how many times my sister said, put that baby down. You're, you're his soother making fun of me. I'm his soother. Put that baby down. He's going to be dependent and sucky his whole life because of that. And, uh, and the aunt, oh my gosh, after six weeks, like you said, he belongs in daycare. Wow. He, he belongs because she did that. She did that to her son who is a mess right now. Like, sorry to say he's a mess. He's not a smart, he's not a smart man. Anyway, I'm going to get off that track right now. But um, it's important to see this in our own families and communities. Like we do need to acknowledge it. You know, this, I'm, I'm a big advocate of this in terms of acknowledging the war that we're in overtly because the war that we're in is covert by nature, right? On many, many levels. It has been covert uh, for, you know, hundreds of years at least. But also we live in what is called fifth generation warfare. And fifth generation warfare is, is you know, they look at the study in, in, in theory, in warfare theory, they look at first generation, second generation, third generation. So we're in fifth generation warfare. And one of the primary aspects of fifth generation warfare is that it is warfare that blurs the lines between citizen and soldier. It blurs the lines between your everyday life and the battlefield. And it essentially means that a lot of the war that we're in is hidden and meant to look like everyday life. And that people who are under attack by an enemy, the way that these attacks are designed are to, number one, make sure that the person doesn't know that they're in a war. And number two, to make sure that they don't know that they're a target that's being attacked. That is the nature of fifth generation warfare. This is a very, very well-defined theory of warfare. So one of the things that I feel is very important is that we take the, the implicit aspects of this war and we make them explicit. And one of the best ways to do that is to study how has this war affected me, my family, and my community, and get clear on that. Um, and I think people could be doing this more. And so what you're doing, I think, is very healthy in that you're reflecting on, you know, the ideological subversion that occurred in terms of feminism and how that affected your relatives. We do need to understand it in those terms, because then we're bringing that covert warfare out into the open. Then it can be spoken of directly, which empowers us more. And I think also there's a tendency right now to get plugged into the Internet, to get plugged into social media and to become a part of this outrage machine. And it just produces so much outrage. People are online all day looking at all the, the most horrible stuff and they're looking at like what's going on. And so on the one hand, they're studying the war and they see, you know, this is warfare. You know, they go and they look and they see the way that the, the school system is affecting children's innocence or the way that popular culture is affecting children's innocence. And they get very upset and they look at some of the worst, most grotesque examples of what's happening to children. But then after they produce all this outrage and their adrenaline is pumped up and they become dysregulated, they don't spend any time reflecting on the specific ways the wars manifest in their family and their community. And that's important because the only way we're going to be able to produce actual solutions is if we stop using the examples, the outrageous examples we're seeing on the internet, and we start trying to find the real examples that we can actually discover with our own body offline, confirm them for ourselves. Because when I, this is what I found is that when you go through the process of uncovering this war with your physical body offline in your relationships and your community, you, you become much more empowered to produce solutions that do eventually reach that larger war that we're in that is very large in scale and very sophisticated. 
but you are, you're very much empowered to do that. So I think, I think what you're doing is, is very meaningful. And this is something I spoke to in my most recent presentation at um, Break Live, at the Break Live conference in Sandpoint, Idaho, was really trying to get people to get into the practice of, sure, study the war online just so you can have some cursory understandings, but make sure you're reflecting on how it specifically manifests in your life. And the only way to do that is to gather information with the body which of course, if you're only online, you're disembodied. That's what social media does. Social media is a disembodiment ritual. It cuts all the beautiful senses we have to gather truth out of the picture and says, oh, it's okay, just use your mind and your nervous system and you know some, some of your emotional waves and just go, go with that. And these are not very good truth gathering tools when they're isolated in that regard. Yeah, and intention is everything, right? So if you if you're strong enough to hold uh, a more internal, you know, body and life promoting intention, that's great. And and one of the things, you know, so I was uh, diagnosed with cancer in 1990. What was it? Nine. And so I'd been, you know, I'd, I'd faced my death, been through a few heroes' journey uh, rounds myself, and I'd picked up tools to deprogram. That's how I saved my life and, and working with archetypes and, and studying. Okay. Like, yes, you know, there's probably a lot of things killing me, but let's find it right here and take this out, whatever is agreeing with that. And it allowed me to withstand the peer pressure, say like fast forward to 2007 when I got pregnant, or well, I guess I had my son in 2007 and, you know, it, it, like the whole pregnancy is everybody's like, go to the doctor. And, and every woman wanted to tell me their horror story, the, the terrible things that happened in the birth and the hospital. And, the, and you know, like, and I just like, la, 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 you know, just like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't listen. I wouldn't listen to all of that stuff. And then after I had my baby and I'm hearing everybody tell me to put the child down and, and, uh, you know, like it, let him cry it out and all this kind of crap and everything. So I was able to withstand that peer pressure and continue to listen to my own inner instincts. And, and people really confuse what instincts mean. I did a deep dive on this, that it's not our fear. It's it, instincts are not fear. They are, they are the biological drive that's based in love. And, and my instincts always spoke louder than those messages. And, uh, you know, I have one of, I, I can't take credit for it. Who knows? I could have had a different child and, and different outcome, but he's one of the most secure you now guys, young adults that I ever met, never cried when I dropped him off at a friend's house, never, you know, like never had any that like nighttime anxieties and nightmares and all of the, you know, wetting the bed and all of those symptoms that you see are, uh, you know, I, I, I won't rave about my family anymore. <laughs> Don't bother okay. about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting it off my chest. But you know, that it's, that's what we need to be able to withstand is the, is the peer pressure with our own clear intention, our own embodiment, our own sense of uh, the life force speaking and letting it have a voice so that when you do go to the social media, you're, you're, coming at it from a different place and, and knowing I'm, I'm not invulnerable to this because my whole world happens online, but uh, more, you know, more often I'm like, okay, that's turning off. I'm going to go and make ferments and pay it forward to my gut and my son's gut in the future. Uh, you know, it just like, let's keep things in order here. Who's in control. Yeah. You know, I've been studying this from the perspective of the brain a lot, and this is something that I'm producing more content on that, um, 
you know, we've very much be become entrenched in the left hemisphere of the brain. And mm -hmm. the left hemisphere of the brain, you know, is very much about grasping, uh, you know, grasping the material world, but also trying to grasp certainty and to be certain about things. Whereas the right hemisphere of the brain, you know, it doesn't, it literally doesn't have its own language, right? So it's your left hemisphere that deals with things in terms of language and these concrete definitions. The right hemisphere is dealing much more with metaphor and intuitive knowledge. The right hemisphere is much more about processing uncertainty and utilizing doubt or about our capacity to hold multiple different contradictory truths at one time. Um, and this is one of the things that I think the social media space and the pressure that you're speaking to, you know, it often... We are pressured into trying to have an opinion, trying to have a, a sense of certainty, be a certainty about what is going on in the world. When in fact we would benefit from actually waiting, um, you know, taking more time to observe, allowing ourselves to comfortably rest in doubt, or or to at least accept the discomfort of doubt and uncertainty. Um, I think these are healthy practices, and I, I look at these as practices for for navigating fifth generation warfare, for navigating the spaces that we're in. Um, because there's there's just so much pressure to be certain about what is going on. And when you compare that to the fact that we're living through a war that is designed to make it very unclear what is really going on, um, you know, those are two very conflicting things. And, um, you know, I'm I'm very intrigued by this challenge as someone who worked in the space of mindfulness and meditation for a long time and looked at the practice of uh, non-attachment, um, you know, what that means in the social media space. Uh, I'll give an example. Like, you know, I put out some pretty controversial material, um, you know, so I'm often challenged by people. I often, my work will trigger people. They'll, they'll come at me pretty hard. So what I do is I observe, you know, the impact on my body's emotional system. If I'm confronted by someone, you know, if someone puts like a really confrontational comment, let's say about some of my material, um, and it creates an emotional response in me, I don't respond to that person until my emotional wave has finished. And then there's naturally a sense of clarity that emerges. And, I, you know, emotions, emotions create meaning through time. There's nothing but emotions that create complete meaning in the middle of an emotional wave. Meaning comes in terms of our emotional intelligence. It's, it's about meaning stretched out through time. And so what I've observed with this as a social media practice is that if I'm in a conversation with someone that's very intense, it's about a very intense issue that's going on in the world and a, a, an emotional wave has been provoked in me, when I wait until that emotional wave comes to a conclusion and I observe the natural clarity that arises within me at that moment, the response that I can then give that person, it's likely to do a number of things. Number one, it's much more likely to actually communicate something effectively effectively to someone who may see the world differently than me. And so it might actually end up having a positive impact on them because I'm not putting any kind of um, dysregulation into my commentary. And I really feel that, you know, a dysregulated nervous system, you're embedding that in your messaging. But at the same time, even if what I'm putting out there doesn't end up reaching that person and they're entrenched in their way and they were never going to hear what I was saying anyways... What I still find is that what I ended up articulating by waiting for emotional clarity, I often end up with something where I'm like, wow, I can go take that and I can go use that elsewhere in my work because being put into the position of this person's, um, you know, their, their view of the world and having to confront it and form my values and my principles more clearly, uh, I now have a takeaway that I can then go use elsewhere. And so I found this practice very useful and it really, 
it harkens back to a lot of this harkens back to what I discovered when I was first in university. I was being trained as a theater maker that the restrictions free you and that your creativity needs a correct container. This has been become my philosophy with the war that we're in, that my study of warfare is my study of um, of the container of the restrictions that are you know, unavoidable to me. You know, I'm, I'm naturally restricted by this war that we're in, but I use that to give myself purpose and meaning and direction. And so in fact, I find it very inspiring because now that I have taken the time to study the war that we're in, the ways that are correct for me to be of service. When I look at my hero's journey and the meaning of my struggle, it's very, very clear what I'm here to do and what parts of this war I meant to respond to instead of feeling overwhelmed by it. Uh, it fills me with purpose. Mm -hmm. Wow, we might have been separated at birth. <laughs> yeah, it's just lots of lots alignment. Of, lots of alignment. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I love what you said, just to highlight how you know the emotions are meaning stretched out over time. And uh, as a deprogramming coach and and trainer of coaches, I'm looking at this all the time. <clears throat> if you if you focus on deprogramming emotions, you will have very very limited success. First of all, because the amount of accumulated emotions for the average person is off the charts from one lifetime, you know, we don't even know how many. And, and so if you wrestle with that, then it's a, you're wrestling with a moving target. Also, it, it is a spiral of emotions. It is a movement like a scale, very much like what you're saying about the restrictions, <clears throat> which work for us, not against us. So once you see that you're in this container and that God has created this order inside yourself and everywhere, not just inside you, and you allow yourself to go deeper and see there is a, there is a level of programming that doesn't have meaning stretched out over time. It has no memories. It has no associations. And so you can lock in on the signature vibration of it and make a new decision about it at that point. And to me, that is, the, that is the exact process of healing when you say, oh yeah, I'm running this program that says I'm afraid to die and I'm not dying and I don't need to run that very expensive, high energy demand program anymore. Let it go, you see the results right before your eyes. You will see things in your life reflect that change and that new decision and, and, and energy. And then also to highlight what you were saying about the, you know, when the conflicts come up, because I've been subject to many attacks as well, like over, like unbelievable. And the attacks don't just come from enemies. I want you to know, like, it's also, right, the internal attacks that I find is, wow, the, the controllers are just laughing. We, they don't need to do anything really to get us into conflict. And, um, and then uh, the, what you're saying, <clears throat> how often, um, like probably 100% of the time when I've been attacked, I just sit back and I see, oh, what did it evoke in me? Oh, it, it brought up these feelings and these programs. And then I make that my primary work, not finding out what's wrong with them or how to tell them what's wrong with them or all that, you know, how, be, how to be so sophisticated and telling them what's wrong with them. I'm fairly done with that. And, and very often I get to the other point at the other side, like you're saying, I, I have clarity and I almost never need to go and, and message them unless they're asking for that, you know, unless they're wanting insight, but they're usually yeah. not as, as my attacker. So, you know, the clarity comes and nothing needs to be done. I, you know, very small example with somebody the other day that was, it was uh, super confused about a message and, and they were getting me to jump through some hoops. And I'm like, I don't really feel like jumping through hoops. In fact, I'm angry at them for getting me to jump through hoops. So I'm going to go off and release the anger and the programming 
And then I came back to my text and they figured it out all by themselves. And the, wow. right. Yeah. Beautiful. So like, this, yeah, little evidence for all of that, how that, how beautifully that works. So congratulations on, on getting to this place. That's just uh, to me, a, a very high thing. Um, well, I, also, I mean, it comes from lots of mistake making. <laughs> of course. Right. And, and daily. So it's, to me, yeah. this is all very humbling work. Not, not that I get to say I'm so great. Um, and, and the ability to suspend conclusion is something I train my coaches in because it's, you, you do get more aware, you do get more uh, sensitive to what somebody's going on. You can, you literally can read somebody, but you're not going to use that reading as a way to restrict them. If we go back to the word that you used, they're doing that themselves. They're already in a context. God has already created that order. We're already at war. And, and then the ability to suspend your own conclusion and like, yeah, I saw this in them, but I'm going to, I'm going to let go of that conclusion or at least suspend it and see, do they come to the same conclusion? That can be very often. And it's affirming for your own intuition. Um, but let them do it. Let them birth, let them uh, go through that rite of passage. So they have a map, how they got there, not just somebody telling them, here's your problem or here's your solution. Yeah, it's so meaningful to give people that opportunity. And I think, you know, when when we look at this from that that perspective I was talking about earlier of like the left hemisphere, right hemisphere, we just we live in a world that is constantly trying to reaffirm the left hemisphere's way of being. And so it does take some work. You're sort of swimming upstream when you practice things like, you know, not coming to conclusions, not coming to certainty. You are flexing this right hemisphere. Um, but in doing that, um, you are creating spaces and opportunities for people to arrive within that are very, very meaningful. They're very powerful. Um, you know, and I look at this a lot in terms of parenting. Um, you know, uh, my children, of course, you know, my children are children that have been raised in this war, in this very sophisticated fifth generation war. They are children of this war. And so raising them within that context um, and giving them the ability to hold a kind of lightheartedness, even as we move through all of this, uh, has been very, very powerful and not not to radicalize them in this way or that according to what's going on in the world. You know, I, I do a lot of comedy. I have a lot of comedy content uh, that I've put into the world. And so, you know, when, for example, when things got really dark with the lockdowns and all that, they saw my response to be to to laugh at as much of it as I could. And they saw some of the characters that I made and the ridiculousness of what was going on. And so we got to laugh together as a family through a lot of that. Um, and I think Sometimes that's a good way of staying um, in a place uh, where you're not going to use that left hemisphere desire to, to grab onto certainty, to, to come to conclusions about yourself or the world. Sometimes it's humor and comedy that, that creates the lightheartedness we, we need. Um, you know, it's really important. It's really important for people. And I think, you know, I, I want families, this is very much a, a focus for me in terms of what I want to do with my Legacy Keepers project. You know, I want to empower families to, to find these practices in the unique ways that are true to them. And it's like you were saying about how there are aspects of ourselves that are reliable, right? When you start to look past all the emotional programming and those programs, you realize that you can suspend and not participate anymore. You start to find the parts of yourself that are reliable, that are always there right? That which you can, that, that which you can come back to again and again. Um, and I think when we look at child rearing, for example, um, each child is made up of a, a different combination of, of those things. They have 
the aspects of themselves that are reliable. So that's the sort of nature, you know, that each child is born with their own nature, those things that are always there. And as a parent, you see it, right? You see the part of your child that was there. They had certain habits and ways, even from breastfeeding into adolescence. You're like, oh man, that part of them that's always been there. You see it, right? But then each child also, they also uniquely have the parts of themselves that are more open to being conditioned by the world, that are more available to being programmed. Um, and so guiding each child and seeing each child's unique hero's journey, to me, a big part of it has to do with understanding which parts of your child are open to things like social engineering and, and cultural influence, and which parts of your child are rock solid, are not going to be influenced, are always going to be there for them. And learning that early on as a parent can really empower you to guide your children in a different way. And this is what I'm aiming to do with Legacy Keepers is to give parents a tool to use the hero's journey to see those different parts of their child. So let's say you're worried about, you know, the way that the public schools are influencing children today. You know, there's a lot of people struggling with the way that schools are teaching about gender and sexuality, for example. Here, you know, in Canada, we know there's a big uprising. There was the One Million March for Children. There's a huge pushback. Muslim families are very upset about this. Um, and so it can be tempting to get stuck in a collective perspective on, oh, this is happening collectively to all the children. But what is going to protect your child more is getting to know the specific areas of your child's being that are available to influence because their innocence is unique to them, right? Where they can be influenced in their being is unique to them. So you don't want to just get stuck in that collective perspective. And to me, that's a big part of what guardianship is. And becoming a legacy keeper, I think, is, is very much about... Um, First, you see where your child is open to influence and where your child has those natural aspects of themselves that are always there, that are always reliable. And so on the one hand, the areas of themselves that are open to influence, that's what you guard as their innocence. But then as they develop, that's also the area of their being where they're able to cultivate a lot of wisdom because of their openness in that area of themselves. And that's where, to me, getting to know the unique child avails the parent to an opportunity to begin a legacy of knowledge in your family because you've got to know your child so uniquely and you've got to know the areas where they're able to cultivate knowledge that you can then work with that child uniquely and then you do it in maybe a different way with your other child. And so the rites of passage that you design for each child may be totally unique according to their particular design. And so that's a big part of what I'm hoping to inspire in parents in all of this um, is to make this about really like a hyper focus on the unique child in comparison to some of the more tribal collective ways that we've been performing rites of passage up until now. I love that. And do you have a book coming out about that as well? Yeah, so there's a couple things going on. So Legacy Keepers, I have um, um, a workbook that's just like, a, it's a questionnaire and it has like an intro that unpacks a lot of this. And then I have a questionnaire that I have designed according to the hero's journey archetype. And so it walks parents through a questionnaire that explores the child from that lens. Um, that is a workbook that I'm actually going to be offering people um, for free. If they sign up, you sign up for my newsletter. If you go to simonesser.com or daughtersofthewestfilm.com, and I'm going to be offering some workshops on, on the usage of that questionnaire. And then I am also going to be selling uh, a book that is actually a much longer um, you know, it's a much longer uh, offering that is really me unpacking all my research and all the things that I found that really 
um, prove everything that I've discovered that show that family legacy is one of the most powerful things that we could be working on today. And it connects us not only with the uniqueness of our children now, but it's what allows us to speak to the future. And of course, a big part of the war that we're in is that we're, we're working against social engineers who think in terms of multi-generational operations. They think in terms of hundreds of years. They want, they see that if we do this now, we can create this kind of moral and social degradation a hundred years from now, because these, you know, the, these social engineers, they have families that do keep their legacies very intact, which is what's allowed them to perform the kind of warfare that they have. And so if we're going to respond to that at all, we need to be starting to think in terms of multi-generational, you know, um, offerings. And so um, I'm going to be, you know, I'm in the midst of developing this book that's going to map out all my discoveries in that regard. But uh, yeah, if people go and sign up for my newsletter, I'm going to be launching a whole series of courses and offerings to explore the Legacy Keepers workbook um, and to bring families closer to what I think is a, a really strategic pushback against a lot of what's going on. Yay. <laughs> that's so great. I love it. How subversive is that? Mm -hmm. yes. yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's not something that's going to be censored. It's not going to be attacked. Um, and really, you're 100% right. I'm being extremely subversive in my warfare with this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Beautiful. I've absolutely loved this conversation. Simon, I, I feel lucky. Again, shout out to Annette Slater, who introduced us or introduced me to your work. And I would love to be part of the, the Legacy Keepers. So I'm definitely going to go to your website. I do do encourage everybody to, uh, I did put a link in the chat here so you can, oh, it might be a little bit far back to find. But uh, yeah, if you just go to simonessler.com, sign up for the newsletter, and then you'll get uh, that the free questionnaire or workbook, I believe you said. Yeah, then, I'll be sending it out over the next week. So you won't get it right away because I'm putting okay. together the materials to support people's usage of it. So when I send it out, it'll be the context will be clear. Um, but if you sign up for the newsletter, you'll be on the list for that. Um, and then, you know, at, if you're at the website there, then you'll also see all the all the documentary work that I've put together, which really deals with a lot of what we're talking about. So looking at the war on the family, looking at ideological subversion and the process of demoralization. So there's my uh, feature like documentary cut Daughters of the West. And also my six-part docu-series, Superorganism, that explores the war on the family. And if you purchase either of those, you'll get to watch um, as a free bonus my uh, a documentary collaboration I did called Vague Rules. And that really looks at the importation of communist warfare into the West um, through big tech and social media and the response to, to, to COVID, really, um, and critical race theory and gender ideology and all that. That's a short film. So there's a lot of content on there that will help people understand all the research I've been doing on this over the years. And um, probably the best way you can get that, I have what's called my family defenders bundle. And that's actually, I think it's $18 US and you can just purchase all of those films as one package and go through them. And I'm gonna be tying in a lot of the work that I do with legacy keepers to um, a lot of what, what I've offered in these films and you know, all this content over the years. Hey, fantastic. Well, that's a lot, I love it. And uh, so please do visit simonessler.com. I'm gonna give a quick, uh, <clears throat> look at it before we end. Uh, yeah, and people can find me on Instagram too. Of course, that's where I said I'm most active. If you go to Simon underscore Essler 1111, that's me on Instagram. Yes, there it there, is. Right? Yeah, yep. yeah, 
Yeah. So that's a, a good place to stay in your, uh, you are a regular creator. So I appreciate that, uh, that every time I go, there's something new and interesting. And this is your website here. This yeah. is the, um, the, uh, the cut film that you mentioned and, yes. uh, and um, then you go to free thought TVs where you'll find super organism okay. and some of the other work that I've done. You can see legacy keepers right there. You can actually, um, people can pre-purchase the larger book that I'm working on. Nice. Um, and uh, that's a chance to do that there. And then I have a the free thought shop, which I, I'm slowly building with some different apparel, you know, reflecting on free thought and communism and all sorts of things. It looks like my images need some updating, but that's coming together slowly but surely. Um, so the, the website is actually where I'm also going to be um, uh, creating my courses and a lot of the, the, the master classes and stuff that's going to connect people with with a lot of this. So uh, I really I'm looking forward to getting that into the world as well. Nice. And then you've got Rise TV here. As yeah. Well. So Rise TV, I, Rise TV is one of the, um, the American streaming platforms that first brought me on to the journey to becoming a content creator. I have a huge library of content there. So I have um, three seasons of a show called Worlds Within, and I get into metaphysical and occult information and um, you know, tie that into personal empowerment. So the first season is actually a study of the, the metaphysics of warfare uh, and then I get into uh, season two, which is a study of the, the, the concept of internal awareness and what it's really meant through different spiritual traditions to actually move the awareness into the self. And I look at that as becoming a metaphysical activist. So that's season two. And then season three is on awakening education. And I look into the history and corruption of the public schooling model and the response to that in terms of homeschooling and unschooling and a lot of the science of unschooling, which is really child-led learning and what it means to, um, to practice non-interference and allow the child's learning to reveal itself to you as an educator and as a parent. Um, so I have a lot there. And then I have lots of comedy as well. So I have, oh, yeah. a, you know, I have a 60-minute comedy special called Theorize About Conspiracies. And then I also have a, a six-part sci-fi sketch comedy called Simon Esler's Dystopian Imaginarium. And so people can find all of that at rise.tv as well. Amazing. Yeah. So I know what I'm looking at tonight, then that's, that, well, I do make some ferments. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Same lady, wish I had this information when your children were growing up. <clears throat> yeah. We all have to uh, forgive ourselves for not having it. And that's uh, that, but, uh, yeah, but it's, it's a comfort. Yeah. It's a comfort that uh, you're on it and, it, you know, in a, a way making this easy for others because that's our hero's journey is that we'll do, we'll stay in our lane and do what comes good and easy to us or easy-ish, <clears throat> natural, more natural. And uh, we can fill in the blanks for others and, and uh, share our knowledge that way. So thank you so well, much, Simon. I, uh, I hope you come back again and I'm sure we'll find many reasons for that. The comedy alone uh, is, is just so fun. I, I, I was, I always joke to myself, I'll, I'll come back. If I come back again, if I decide that, that if God and I decide that it's good to come back, it, it will be as a comedian. <laughs> I think that's a very well, high calling. Well, I look forward to, uh, to hearing your response to some of the comedy I got out there. I got pretty wacky. So it's a good time. <laughs> good. It's the best. It's the best. So awesome. Well, thanks for having me on. I'd love to come back sometime. Okay. Fantastic. Simon, thank you so much. And I uh, hope you have a beautiful day. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks, everyone, for joining in the, the chat here. It's been fantastic to have friends around. And uh, just to repeat, Crimson Angel said, wow, mind blown. I know, I know. Isn't it fun to see how the, there are so many resources out there that 
we aren't aware of just because they're quiet and they don't go on the mainstream channels. And so that's why I like to keep my ear to the ground on, on good things happening out there. So uh, thank you, Michelle. Appreciate that. Uh, it is uh, good to be introduced to the amazing souls. And yeah, I always wish there was bigger audiences for them, you know, between shadow banning and, and somebody being not known, but I don't mind being somebody that introduces for sure. So I have to run for now, but uh, I love you guys. I, it looks like I might have Rebecca Shepard on this coming Thursday at the same time, 2.30 p.m. Central Time, so you can watch out for that. The following week, Michelle of Michelle's Healing Home and Clay, uh, Kyle Denton of Tippecanoe are going to come on and uh, speaking about the emotional realm and how the, the scale of emotion is going to coincide with the natural world of healing plants and herbs. So that's exciting to me. That's something that, uh, you know, I, it, it might be tempting to just hide that for my students and stuff like that, but I think everybody's going to benefit from, from uh, learning that. And lots of love to you guys. I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day and it will get around. Good things do get around organically and naturally, right? It's uh, That still exists. You can't kill that stuff. So uh, lots of love to you. I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day. And uh, that's all for now. Bye, guys.